0: Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the TD Cowan Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition podcast series where today we're speaking with Julie Kozaraki, who is senior advisor to the DOE's loan programs office or LPO. Listeners may recall we had the director of LPO, Jigger Shaw, on about a year ago. Julie reports to Jigger and among other responsibilities, oversees their nuclear vertical and was one of the lead authors on their liftoff series report on advanced nuclear. If you've not seen that report, I'd highly recommend you check it out. It gives a great overview of advanced nuclear and discusses what's needed for commercial success. So the podcast goes through the findings of that report, how the analysis was done, and feedback that they've gotten since they uh, released the report earlier this year. We also discussed the recent UAMPS termination and and thoughts on the back of that, as well as how the industry order book is shaping up, which I thought was quite encouraging. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy our discussion with Julie Kozaraki. Hey, Julie. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So I guess just to get some introductions going, you're you're a senior advisor to the DOE's Loan Programs Office. What do you advise on? <laughs>
0: Sure. So it's a fun little title that really allows me to have two jobs. So one of those is on nuclear because the Loan Programs Office was created by Congress with nuclear in its original mandate, the Energy Policy Act of 2005. But LPO doesn't yet have the applications we'd need to see for successful new deployment at scale. So a lot of my role is around figuring out what the path is for folks to be able to get to a place where they are ready to apply to the LPO for new nuclear projects. And then I have a second role, broader than nuclear, on our investment process, because particularly with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which created Section 1706, our Energy Infrastructure Investment Program, LPO now not only has much more money in authority, but also has many different authorities. So for example, 1703, which was our existing program, Requires innovative technologies. And 1706 now allows us to finance projects for proven technologies as well. So that has a lot of implications for the types of applications we can handle and the diligence we do on those applications.
1: Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about this, but I don't think you're not a nuclear industry veteran, but you've ramped up your understanding seemingly uh, to a very high level in a short period of time. So maybe just talk about how you did that and maybe what some of the learnings are. Versus perhaps your initial perceptions?
0: Sure. So before I joined the DOE, I'd spent my whole career with the Boston Consulting Group. And so you learn very quickly how to learn quickly. And it sounds a little hokey, but the biggest skill that you walk away from consulting with is the ability to add structure and prioritization to ambiguous problems. And helping to figure out a path forward for the nuclear industry has been not only probably the most ambiguous, but the most compelling problem that I've been able to work on. And I've been really thrilled to be able to do so. And I was fortunate know, at BCG that I was able to do a huge diversity of projects. So I had worked on a uranium enrichment project. I had worked with the Navy on the supply chains for, among other things, the nuclear-powered submarines and aircraft carriers. But, you know, I did everything from work with the Philadelphia Fire Department to the Gates Foundation. So it was really all over the map. And I think that broad base was very helpful in actually approaching the problem from a fresh perspective And I think that a couple of things really surprised me. Uh, One of those is that I am shocked that a lot of people still don't realize nuclear's full value proposition, that particularly as we think about moving towards a decarbonized, resilient grid, that nuclear has all these benefits around not only providing carbon-free electricity, but around being reliable and resilient, around using land really efficiently, using transmission efficiently. And a lot of these things that just seemed so inherent in nuclear's definition of this power, I'm surprised that folks often aren't able to compare effectively with other generation sources. So that that, that still surprises me. I think I was also surprised that there isn't really a nuclear development industry. We have a really successful nuclear operations industry, but we have a couple of the pieces. You know, we have nuclear reactor designers, so folks like Westinghouse or GE Hitachi, And then we have largely, you know, utilities who operate those reactors. And then in between, utilities have been using, you know, general EPC firms to help do a lot of that construction. But there isn't really a fully coherent nuclear industry that's primed to deliver some of those new nuclear projects. So I think that was surprising to me that we can have, you know, some of the brightest minds, physicists, nuclear engineers, really successful operators, but there isn't really yet a structure or a set of businesses in developing new nuclear projects. So I think that was, that was somewhat surprising to me. And then the final piece was that we have this fleet of reactors in the U.S., but they aren't really a fleet because we have 93 operating reactors, but it turns out they're almost all special snowflakes because we've had a habit of customizing and specializing. And so, you know, there are a couple of plants where there might be two reactors at a site and sort of a sister site with very similar reactors. But largely, we haven't yet given ourselves the chance to reach nth of a kind cost or nth of a kind benefits because we kept jumping around. Um, So I think I, I was surprised by the composition of the current fleet.
1: Yeah, that's that's all stuff that I can I can attest I didn't appreciate until I I started following as well. Um to good points there. So let's talk about this liftoff report. And, and maybe to set it up, the what is the liftoff series and, you know, what what's the mission of it? And talk about the process in in putting the reports together and how those are maybe different from some of the reports you did at at Boston Consulting or or other, you know, consulting reports that we might be familiar with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the Liftoff Reports are a shared fact base with the private sector where they share what they need to be successful. And so they are very much in the spirit of us being, and I I know we've all heard Jigar say this, private sector led and government enabled. And they also represent a really successful cross-DUE collaboration. So the nuclear report in particular was a collaboration between the Loan Programs Office, the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, which manages the ARDP projects, uh, the Office of Technology Transitions, as well as the Office of Nuclear Energy. And I think that's really important because historically, the DOE has had a really strong R&D mandate. And with the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, We have seen an increased mandate from Congress around demonstration and deployment, which is a different set of muscles for the department. So it's really important that we have been pulling together multiple offices across the department, as well as incorporating the incredible amount of data that the DOE gets from the private sector. You know, LPO in particular interfaces with hundreds of companies and has incredible data around what those companies need to be successful, the challenges they're facing, what capital allocators are looking for. So I think this was a recognition of the fact that DOE has access to all this incredible data from the private sector, but there wasn't yet a synthesized, uh, distilled version of what that meant about the path forward for these technologies. And so I am really thrilled that we were able to you know, launch that first wave this year. There's been Uh, subsequent technologies released, uh, including virtual power plants. And we are really hoping that these will be living documents that that get updated. But I think the other, you know, you asked how they came about. So part of this was also doing dozens and dozens of interviews with stakeholders and also helped me move from not being a nuclear industry veteran to knowing enough to be dangerous, because this was a terrific excuse to call up all of the experts in the nuclear industry and ask them all the questions around what it would take for nuclear to be successful going forward.
1: Yeah, I think we had one of those initial calls with you and um, maybe maybe revealed our ignorance a little <laughs> bit at the time. Um, so, maybe can you give an example of what some of that unique information was from the DOE's data sets or just something, you know, some anecdotes around what those look like so people have a flavor of what's special in these reports.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the DOE has historically been in a position to support a lot of really exciting uh, research and earlier stage uh, technologies. And I think that particularly in nuclear, a lot of, you know, there is really no question that the US is at the forefront of US, excuse me, of nuclear research and development, but that the challenges, Facing new nuclear um, are not technological. That we have pretty powerful R and D, pretty powerful programs supporting these earlier stages, but that there are real questions around constructability, which I think you know was was not necessarily uh, you know uh, special insight to the to the DOE, but that there are a number of practices that can be supported by different kinds of R&D, not just around the technology, but hey, can we actually figure out how to build these things in a way that the DOE complex and the labs infrastructure uh, can really support? And I think that the nuclear piece in particular was less about uncovering these really unknown insights and more about pulling together the framework of what it was going to take for everyone to move forward. Because I think in nuclear, there's a lot of very specialized but somewhat siloed information. And so, and a lot of that can feel like a black box. So in particular, the calls that we did with investors on nuclear were really powerful because it helped uncover those sorts of questions that make people nuclear skeptics um, or a little unclear about what the path forward looks like. So I think a lot of that was about identifying the sort of specific hurdles um, that nuclear reactor designers or other developers would take to potential customers and why those customers were saying no. I think that was probably the most valuable data. And so the way we flipped that question was, okay, what would it take? You know, So what would it take for a customer to commit to a new project um, or for a customer to, to take a chance on this? And so I think synthesizing what some of those hurdles had been and turning that into what the path to success would look like helped pull that data together and identify um, a path
1: forward. Yeah, and that's the, I guess gets into some of the stalemate uh topic that we'll we'll get to in a little bit cuz i think that that is a big hurdle some of the findings of the report so one of them was that the us needs 550 to 770 new gigawatts of clean firm power to get to 2050 net zero and 200, that's going to be uh, nuclear. So that's another 200 on top of the 100 that we already have, which is interesting because we just heard at COP that we were one of the countries committing to tripling our nuclear um, capacity by by 2050. But um, maybe talk about where you got those numbers. Uh, what are some of the major assumptions uh, being made? You know, one of the things that I think about is you've got you know, nuclear only 200 of the 550 to 750 or so. What's the rest of it, <laughs> and can um, can we really get that much clean firm power out of other sources of uh, of new generation? So, yeah. talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, and first of all, let me say how excited I am about the COP pledge um, and the tripling number, and I hope that the liftoff report helps provide a path to exactly that. You know, what actually tripling. Nuclear capacity in the US would look like and what it would require. But on the modeling front, so we did do some bespoke modeling for this effort, but we also referenced a number of recent modeling efforts because no modeling is ever going to be precise and they're not meant to be a prediction. It's meant to be a blunt force tool to inform the direction we've got to be heading. And I think it is very helpful to do system modeling that points out that even though the, you know, LCUE of solar and wind by themselves, and I'm so excited that we have gotten solar and wind to a place where they are that cheap on an LCUE basis, that actually doing a system that is all renewables without clean firm power is more expensive. And I think that can be counterintuitive for folks. And so a lot of the benefit of system modeling that identifies that, you know, if you have clean, firm sources, call it on the order of 20 to 40% of your grid, that meaningfully changes the amount of uh, long-duration storage that you need, of transmission that you need, of land that you need to use. And so there are a number of other sources for, for clean, firm generation, not a lot. Um, you know, The ones that stand alone are geothermal and hydropower. And then the ones that you can do in combination are solar, wind, paired with long-duration energy storage, uh, or natural gas with carbon capture. And I think that one piece that, uh, you know, goes back to folks understanding the value proposition of nuclear is I don't know that most people realize that energy is largely consumed as it's generated and that energy storage is actually very difficult and expensive. I think that a lot of people have an intuition that we sort of, you know, have these large stores and we can sort of use it when we need it. Um, And folks usually don't realize that there is something powering, you know, these light bulbs right now. And so I think there is often an underappreciation of the value of firm capacity that is always there or there when you need it. And so the system modeling um, really helps show the economic value proposition and that you can move the system costs down by investing in resources that are both uh, clean and firm. But it was also, you know, Particularly when we talk about the 200 gigawatt number, uh, you know, and by that I mean 200 gigawatts of new nuclear in the US by 2050, a tripling of our capacity. You know, we say in the report how that is really a midpoint from a lot of modeling exercises that represents something that's ambitious yet achievable and hopefully helps underscore the direction of the vector, which is we need a lot more nuclear and we need it quickly.
1: That's great. Um, And I just want to go back. I didn't quite get it the you mentioned 20 to 40 percent what's the how much intermittent generation can a grid handle
0: an incredible amount and let me be clear we need all of the solar and wind that we can build as quickly as possible and then you still need the nuclear um, so we do actually show two scenarios in the report uh, one where you build a lot of renewables and one where you build a crazy amount of renewables. Um, and in the scenario where you build more solar and wind, you have to so overbuild the capacity to make up for the intermittent generation um, that that ends up coming uh, with its own cost. But there certainly are ways, and we will, of course, move to a system that supports many more intermittent renewables, and that's okay. But it's a matter of having balancing. And I guess from my perspective, I would much rather have that you know those renewables complemented by nuclear than by fossil fuels because i think that that is really the the trade off that that we're going to be faced with and so i see nuclear as a necessary complement to increased renewables at scale not as competition
1: and and how much of the the 200 or whatever number i guess that's a midpoint so it's not but just proportionally new nuclear would be coming from advanced and small modular reactors because i think the report was you know, it was about advanced reactors, but you're supportive of all kinds of nuclear. So I help us sort of sort that
0: out. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's to be determined because small reactors may play an especially important role in getting folks confident in new nuclear builds again, but it's going to be very tough to meet our decarbonization goals without large reactors. And so you can look at Vogel, so the new nuclear power plants in Georgia, uh, with a loan guarantee from the Program's Office, uh, first new nuclear power plants constructed uh, in, in generation. And you can look at that as the Georgia Public Utility Commission having approved two reactors or 2,200 megawatts. And so, you know, they approved two 1,100 megawatt reactors, but you could imagine that if they instead had done that with 300 megawatt reactors, we would currently be at 7th or 8th of a kind costs. So SMRs may provide an easier way to actually recognize those 7th and 8th of a kind costs because they re- they represent um, smaller investments up front and also that a percentage overrun on a smaller reactor may be easier to, to handle on a balance sheet than an, an overrun on a large reactor. But I do want to be clear that, you know, we scaled up to large reactors for a reason. This wasn't an accident. Um, we made reactors increasingly bigger and bigger to benefit from economies of scale. And it is really, really tough to beat the economies of scale on 1100 megawatt reactor. So there are especially other reactors, as you mentioned. So we cover all types of uh, reactors in the report, and generally we consider advanced to be Gen 3+. plus. So those are Light water reactors with passive safety, as well as Gen 4, which use, uh, you know, which are non-light water reactors. And in particular, some of the uh, non-light water reactors are going to have uh, really important business cases, value propositions outside of traditional utility scale electricity generation, things like industrial decarbonization, um, where you may naturally have smaller reactors serving the industrial load, but perhaps providing you know, really high quality steam or very high temperature heat that's tougher to get from a light water reactor. So you can imagine that there are probably three big niches. There's your big utility scale electricity generation. Um, There's also your industrial processes, you know, really high temperature heat steam. And then third, there's your, you know, true micro reactors, your remote applications where folks are paying crazy amounts for diesel generation um and so those are your true, you know, one to twenty megawatt micro that have a slightly different value problem.
1: And you've mentioned this a couple of times already, sort of the first of a kind to nth of a kind. And we see that in other industries as well. Um, but one of the the conclusions from the report is that I think you expect to lower the the first of a kind cost by forty percent. And it's gonna take like ten to twenty deployments of the same kind with five to ten orders by twenty twenty-five of the same kind. So just Walk us through what all that means, how you came to the conclusion, um, and you know what analysis was done to, to sort of support that.
0: Absolutely. And I'll also mention that we have, since the publication of the report, new data that we're hoping to incorporate into an update, um, because something that's particularly important to understand for nuclear is how much can get wrapped up in the true first-of-a-kind costs, so costs that you will never have to deal with again. And so I think we've seen some really exciting data on this out of Vogel. So for example, uh, hot functional testing at Vogel Unit 3 took 94 days. Hot functional testing at Unit 4 took 42 days. So you were talking about huge drop-offs in time for, for key processes. And there are a number of other costs around finalizing the AP1000 design, for example, or completing all of the work packages for construction that you have done after the first-of-a-kind that you never have to pay for going forward. So I think that one of the challenges with our traditional utility-led, you know, focused on their own reactor model is that it hasn't given you multiple reactors to spread those fixed, true first-of-a-kind costs. Um, You know, it would be equivalent to someone trying to load up the first house in a neighborhood with all the fixed-cost infrastructure Um, or all of the, you know, designs for every other house in the neighborhood, or all of the, you know, water utilities um, serving everyone else. So I think that there is a clear distinction between your first-of-a-kind costs and then what you expect going forward. And then we walked through in the report a couple of the areas where you expect to see those costs come out. And I think there are two big things to consider. One is how much you can actually factory-assemble and modularize. And then, two, how much better you can get at mega project construction. Um, so, I think that, you know, I, I will say that factory modularization has perhaps been a bit overhyped in the larger SMR space because realistically, if you're building a 300 megawatt reactor, that's going to be a lot of on site civil works construction. That's okay, because then that just means that a lot more of the value has to come out of over-investing in that pre-construction planning, in having the resource-loaded schedule done, um, in having, you know, real benefits from just repeat deployments of a standardized, you know, balanced plant, which is a slightly different value proposition. But we do have good data outside the U.S. largely. So I think South Korea has probably the best data set here where South Korea uh, stuck with one design, the APR 1400, and they got really good at it. And they have been uh, building four of the APR 1400s in the UAE, and you see the same learning curve even between units one and four in the UAE, pretty monumental differences um, in cost and timing. So although, as I mentioned earlier, we have a little bit of a fleet of snowflakes in the US such that we don't have a huge data set on how to come down the cost curve with reactors there, when folks have stopped with the design, and gotten really good at it, you see really substantial reductions. Um, one other piece I, I, I will mention, um, just because we, we mentioned some other folks earlier, is that, um, you know, anytime Jigger or I talk about nuclear, folks are in our comments asking why we're wasting time and money on nuclear um, because, you know, don't you know how solar, how cheap solar is today? And folks seem to forget that people were signing PPAs for solar at $170, $180 a megawatt hour pretty recently. They call it 2011, 2012. Um, And you saw really monumental price reductions from just repeat deployment and a number of other factors. But I think that nuclear is worth the same investment. Um, The first projects are going to be expensive, but first-of-a-kind anything is expensive. And it's about identifying those core categories of where you expect to see cost reductions and showing folks what that path looks.
1: So yeah, I guess one of the other conclusions of the report, right, was that once you get to that nth of a kind, it would translate into. I think it had either sixty-five or sixty-six dollars a megawatt hour, but that included some of the IRA subsidies. So if you sort of take that out and try to look at it on an unsubsidized basis, we're talking about maybe an LCOE of seventy-five bucks a megawatt hour, which you know LCOE is is imperfect, but um, you know, because it doesn't take take into account the round the clock nature of nuclear and, and all that stuff. But I think when investors hear seventy five bucks a megawatt hour and they hear the solar numbers or they hear, you know, other solar plus storage or whatever whatever it may be that they think is on a path to something that's substantially lower, they don't think seventy five can hunt. So what what analysis have you guys done, or what gives you confidence that that's you know that's a viable number?
0: Yeah. So- I will take that a little further to say that I think LCOE is doing us all a disservice because I think that it is not framing the decisions and the trade-offs that we have to make appropriately. And I really hope that there is some way that we can move towards something that captures more of a system cost of electricity. And I was really thrilled to you know see Lazard, including the cost of firming intermi- intermittency and their LCOE analysis this year. But you have to account for both decarbonization and resiliency benefits. You know, we we mentioned earlier, and I won't belabor that nuclear doesn't need to compete with solar by itself. It's got to compete with solar paired with long duration storage, um, which puts those about on par. But when it comes to why that cost is worth it, I think that we have to look at the business case, particularly for tech companies and hyperscale data centers because companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon are going to need an incredible amount of electricity to power AI, data centers, and and those are things you need powered around the clock. Um, And they are simply not going to be able to grow their businesses to the potential that they could if they don't have the power that they need to operate. And they, you know, I, I am so thrilled that they have already made commitments Um, to clean electricity. And so if it's a matter of, you know, needing the power in order to be able to operate and grow your business, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that we are also not necessarily accustomed to thinking about prices appropriately because we haven't had new growth in so long. Um, I encourage folks to look at the recently updated projections from Georgia Power and Duke around just how much new load growth they are expecting. Because we, you know, largely as a result of things like energy efficiency, you know, have not had much load growth for the last 15 years or so. So a lot of folks in the positions making these decisions have not really had to manage through really serious growth. And if we are talking about situations where we are doubling or tripling the amount of electricity we need to support evs to support ai to support a number of other sectors and economic growth you know that's going to require building a lot of new generation and some of those you know first and early ones are are going to be more expensive but it's a very different mindset through sort of um eking out efficiencies at a flat load growth versus really investing to double or triple our our electricity
1: so we talked about the stalemate earlier this commercial stalemate where you know and I, I sort of think about it from a, you know, as an investor, why would I sign up for the first-of-a-kind when I know that nth-of-a-kind is going to be a lot cheaper? And that, that's a very obvious challenge. Um, so maybe talk about some of the potential um, solutions that, that the report discussed. And are there any examples we've seen where, you know, or, or are there any discussions underway Maybe it involves a loan from LPO, but just you know, help us help us see how that's that's going to unfold.
0: Absolutely. So Chris will help us, who I work closely with at LPO, and I was a co-author on their report. He you know once distilled it down to you know everyone says they'd like to be fourth, but no one can be fourth unless you identify who's going for a second and third. And so I think that it may be as simple as the folks who want to go fourth grabbing three of their closest friends or neighboring utilities and aligning around uh, a shared design. And among, you know, the four of them, getting to that critical mass of reactors and working together, because I think that those folks are now increasingly at a risk of just not being able to find new sources of generation. And the trade-offs on that are very different than they were even a year or six months ago, again, just because of these um, load projections. And I think that even though utilities, the whole time behind closed doors, have been saying, of course, you need nuclear to do this, there, there's no way to do this without new nuclear, um, they are finally being forced to try to answer some of these uh, new load growth projections. And there just aren't many other great options. You know, the, the other source of a lot of this new growth is manufacturing. And so, for example, you know, now that all these folks in Georgia have all this clean, reliable power from Vogel, manufacturers see that as a really attractive place to to site a new factory. And so that creates a positive feedback loop of where you have the clean, reliable power, um, folks want to go and, and do business there. So I'm very hopeful um, that folks are able to uh, band together and um, figure out a way to get up to that critical mass of reactors. And there will also be an important point in making sure that they even have um, a spot in line. Because if we get to a place where, um, you know, the, the tide turns and finally there is unanimous agreement that, that we need to move forward with new nuclear um, if everyone has already grabbed spots one through four for the supply chain and for reactor deployment, you're going to be in a really tough spot um, if you were planning to go next and everyone has already moved ahead without you.
1: Okay, great. And so in terms of the experience so far, or at least what you know people have to look at for evidence of these first of a kind projects, there was a small modular project that was recently terminated. And I saw a lot of media coverage saying, you know, this is a confirmation that nuclear is too expensive. We're never going to see this really move forward. Um, but I think the project had some very specific issues in addition to cost that, um, or, or maybe that drove the cost. I'm not quite sure. Um, but it might be a unique situation. Um, and maybe it wasn't entirely just due to costs of SMRs or of nuclear. So, What's been the reaction to this uh, at DOE or among your network? What do do you have to say?
0: Sure. So I think that UAMPS and the New Scale the Carbon-Free Power Project provide us really critical lessons about how to structure future projects for success. And that involves, as we were just talking before, lots of reactors and lots of rate payers, um, and hopefully lots of big credit-worthy offtake. Because if we just contrast, for example... Uh, Vocal with, with Georgia Power. There are millions of ratepayers who are going to benefit from those costs, but also millions of folks you're able to divide those costs amongst. Um, and I think it also shows the importance of moving away from one of a kind reactor projects because, you know, first of a kind, anything, economics don't work. And so we don't set ourselves up um, for success when we look for a first of a kind demonstration of a new technology to meet. Uh, you know economic needs that you that you would expect to see on a on a subsequent deployment. So I think that it just provides us some really helpful um, solvable lessons for how we structure future projects. And I really hope that that looks like, for example, a minimum of five reactors by design, such that you are not left trying to load up one first of a kind reactor with all those unique first of a kind costs we discussed instead of allowing yourself to spread those out. Because, you know, for example, when uh, Boeing was trying to sell the 747, they didn't try to sell one very expensive plane to a customer loaded up with all the costs of designing the plane and setting up the manufacturing line and supply chain. They sold 25 of them to Pan Am. Um, So I think that those are similar constructs that that we can take. Um, And the other piece, and this ties into the role that I think tech companies have to play, is in lining up folks who have an incentive for fleets of reactors and uh, whose business really depends on that clean, firm power. So you can also imagine that there is some type of uh, role for industrials or big tech companies like Microsoft, Google, and Amazon in uh, buying the offtake from some of those first units, perhaps at a premium price, just because they have so much to gain from the success of those projects. Do
1: you think we could see... A tech company actually owning the generating asset rather than having some intermediary owner that has a PPA agreement?
0: I have not yet heard anyone um, in that space express a desire to own or operate the asset, but I think that's okay. Um, I think that if they can provide the offtake and they can provide, um, again, a lot of that, not just offtake, but big... Credit worthy premium offtake. That is hopefully what it's going to take to catalyze some of those first and early projects. Because I think right now utilities are in sort of this tentative space and they're eventually with these updated load growth forecasts coming to terms with the reality of this much new generation. But I think that tech companies, if they are able to say, hey, you know, we stand to gain so much from the deployment of these first reactors that we're actually to take, we're, we're able to take a lot of those costs off of rate payers for the first reactors. I think that that is a really workable model that benefits everyone because ratepayers, you know, even if a lot of that early output is going to the tech companies, they still benefit from all of the grid, reliability, resiliency benefits from having new nuclear in the mix. Um, so I think that that model has a lot of promise.
1: Do you, do you have a sense or have you seen any analysis of what the tech demand could be. So, right, there's data center demand. We knew that was growing, but now that's probably, you know, it always seems to surprise expectations. And now you layer on AI on top of it and, you know, the, the numbers could get astronomical. But just do you have any, have you seen any projections or have any view on, you know, where load growth could go from those, those two end markets?
0: Folks have been holding those estimates a little close to the vest, but suffice it to say they are shockingly high. Um, and they are looking for that power suit. You know, we aren't talking about 2040. A lot of this is, you know, late into the 2020s, early 2030s. And that's also why I think that even if folks are thinking about, you know, oh, well, maybe we don't need all this new generation until the mid-2030s. When it comes to nuclear, that means you should have started yesterday in looking at designs, siting, licensing, and all these things. Um, But I think that a lot of these load growth forecasts are... Again, in support of doubling or even tripling the amount of peak load that, that we serve today, and that is not a growth curve that folks, you know in these roles have had to grapple with for the last few years. So we cannot get started fast enough.
1: Okay, I want to shift gears slightly um, and talk about enrichment because um, we had Centris on uh, the pod, Recently, And they were discussing about how, you know, the lack of enrichment capability here in the U.S. is it's not only sort of a, an um, energy, but it's also sort of a national security risk. Um, do you think we can satisfy our enrichment needs without nationalizing our enrichment industry? Because everybody else is going to nationalize. Uh, all the companies are nationalized. So...
0: I think that we will benefit from a diversity of supply. So if we have folks like centrists and then folks who, as you mentioned, are um, operated by, you know, friends, partners and allies like Urenco, which is co-owned by the German, Dutch, Dutch and uh, excuse me, by the Dutch, German and British and Urano, uh, you know, supported by the French. Those are, you know, countries for whom we do lots of business and share lots of common interests. So I think that we all benefit from um, having, you know, not only domestic capabilities, but also making sure that we are getting the most from and contributing the most to our allies and partners um, in the space as well. I, I also think that, um, you know, and I, I'm really excited about the work that the Office of Nuclear Energy and now with support from the White House have done on ensuring that there is funding for these fuel needs. But um, I do want to make sure that people don't think that um, HALO is this chicken or the egg issue because um, when I have heard folks like Urenco speak about it, they are coming from the, you know, what I think is very reasonable position that they don't yet see the the order book. They don't yet see the signed contracts um, or committed orders for for new reactors. And there generally is a natural order of things where if you have signed contracts for new reactors, the supply chain can stand itself up and can confidently make those capital investments. Um, so I think that, you know, we have the really strong pillar of government support, and it looks like there may be a path to, to funding that. But the other piece of that is ensuring that there is really strong commercial demand. And I think that a lot of um, the supply chain can stand itself up um, if those orders are there and folks see the see the path.
1: One of the criticisms I've heard of all the HALU support is that, you know, we don't even have LEU capabilities. Why don't we just start with that? Like that's where the funding needs to go first because you make HALU out of LEU. So what are the thoughts on that?
0: We are definitely going to need both to be successful. Um, And so I am excited that there is an increased focus on what the U.S. will have to do to ensure um, independence um, and that we can work with, you know, our friends, partners, and allies on ensuring that we have a fuel supply chain, but it's definitely it's going to take both. We definitely need both LU for the existing fleet and new light water reactors, um, as well as HALU for the GENF reactors.
1: Okay. Well, maybe let's talk about what's going on at LPO as it relates to nuclear and and if there's also anything on enrichment. That's why I kind of wanted to ask that enrichment question before we, we got onto LPO. Um, it's just what, what's the involvement right now? What to the application list look like? What types of projects are you seeing? What types of projects are you not seeing that you'd like to be seeing?
0: Sure. So we do have on the order of $16 billion in nuclear applications at LPO, but I will say that we really need to see applications from utilities who are planning to move forward with new nuclear projects. Because as I mentioned, you know, there is a natural order of things where if we have uh, plans for the reactors, the supply chain will be able to scale up. And so LPO, um, our nuclear authorities allow us to support not only new generation assets like new nuclear power plants, but we can also support manufacturing supply chain uh, in support of those. So we can really finance the whole nuclear value chain. But what's, you know, and so we have some interesting applications on more of that manufacturing side, but we are mandated to meet a reasonable prospect of repayment. And so in order to ensure that there is a path to repayment for the supply chain or for manufacturers of SMRs, you've got to have the offtake and you've got to have folks uh, like utilities, it doesn't have to be exclusively utilities, but big creditworthy uh, offtake and folks who are able to manage these projects and pull ahead the whole supply chain with them. So I think that folks are taking the right steps. And I think increasingly with the um, support and business need from industrials and from tech companies and from manufacturers, it will be easier for utilities to start moving along that path. But we are really um, excited for utilities to to take a few more of those steps. Um, You know, for example, I was very excited to see that uh, Duke announced publicly recently that they're looking at um, new nuclear at a retiring coal facility. And I really hope that we see many more of those announcements from from other utilities going forward.
1: So just to be clear, I got you. Like, if in this case, if Duke were to build new nuclear at this facility, they could get a loan for that project. And as long as it had, it it, it, does it need to have a PPA, or it just needs to go into their into their rate base? And we know that they've got, you know, they're they're credit worthy because of that.
0: Of course. So that, you know, of of course, then getting a loan would be subject to the rigorous LPO due diligence process. um, But I would love nothing more um, than to see applications from utilities like Duke. And exactly as you mentioned, um, that provides such a clear and compelling case for repayment. You know, in the case of Vogel, for example, right? Um, You know, there are multiple owners of that project, but Georgia Power is one of them. And, you know, we're really excited at the perseverance and grit they've shown in seeing that project through. And, you know, there is real credit worthy, strong offtake with the millions of rate payers that are are able to help support that project. Um, And so I think we're really hopeful that a lot of folks are able to take advantage of um, the tools at the loan Programs Office and pair them with the tax credits. Right. So if someone like Duke or someone else were to apply to LPO, they would also be able to pair that with the 30 percent investment tax credit that can go up to 50 percent with the adders um, or the production tax credit. So I Mm -hmm. think that that is a really compelling uh, package for new nuclear. They also, I I think a lot of folks may not know this, um, all assets eligible uh, for the ITC, for example, can also use the five-year makers, the modified accelerated cost recovery. So you can depreciate an entire nuclear power plant in five years. Um, So there are a number of really compelling benefits for folks taking advantage um, of the IRA and other tools, including the new LPO authorities. That's
1: great. And what, what types of projects can't you do? So if we were to think about what's what's not ever going to qualify for, for a loan, what, what do those look like?
0: Sure. So right now um, we are financing projects that are physically located in the United States. But I will note that, for example, if we were to finance um, a module manufacturing facility for nuclear reactors, the products of that could be exported. So it's just that the actual project, so whether that be a nuclear power plant or a new manufacturing facility, that's got to be located in the U.S. So it can't be outside of the U.S. And then uh, right now, um, and I will say this is something you know you would be surprised how often I have to uh, qualify to folks that it is the loan program's office and not the grant program's office. So you know there is some discussion um, in the report of cost over and insurance, and there's been some discussion around you know a partially forgivable loan. And whether that could act as cost over an insurance, but that would require, um, you know, direction from Congress in order to change the, you know, LPO authority. So right now, we are only able to make um, loans that have to be repaid uh, with interest, very competitive interest rates, in many cases, U.S. treasuries plus, plus three. Um, but right now, you know, if, if we were to be able to act on something like a partially forgivable loan or a cost overrun uh, protection, that would require uh, some action uh, from Congress and would be outside our current authorities. I
1: want to wrap it up with your, uh, one of the prescriptions that we talked about earlier was having five to 10 real orders by 2025. How are we doing there? And, and do you think that that, do you think we can hit that given, you know, we really haven't seen much since you guys put that out?
0: Yes. So I will say that there is a flurry of activity I don't want to say behind closed doors, but it's just not yet at the level of press releases. And I think it is a combination of all the factors that we just discussed. And I think in particular, as a result of um, the role that tech companies can play, of the incredible amount of new electricity that we're going to need, and actually of utilities willingness to work together and figure out how um, if they... Form some type of consortium or buyers club that none of them really have to be first; that they really can all be fourth if they go together. Um, I think that a lot of those pieces are coming together, so I am very hopeful um, that over the next few months there will start to be um, a more public-facing version of what that path to success looks like. And I do think that we are we are starting to see some some of those pieces come together. So, so I'm hopeful.
1: Awesome. Well, Julie, thank you so much. This has been great and uh, look forward to chatting again sometime.
0: Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.